you open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. And the title of our message is Looking Forward to Heaven. So we're going to get to understanding this title in a moment. But I want to tell you about somebody I thought about this week. I thought, thought about my friend Les Troyer. Now, some of you may not know Les Troyer, but if uh, some time ago there was his daughter who used to play violin for us here on stage, Jessica, she got married. Uh, but her father is a unique individual, uh, and I've known him for a long time. Les is an incredibly hard worker. He's a wonderful father. He's an incredible husband from what I've been told. And yet he has one unique attribute, and that is he is an ultra-marathon runner. Now for those of you that don't know what an ultra-marathon trail runner is, it is a person, technically the definition is anyone who runs over 26.2 miles. Now he doesn't like just short runs like that. He enjoys the long runs. In fact, yesterday he did a 103-mile trail run in Pennsylvania through the woods. So this isn't just like on a towpath or anything. He goes through the mountains and through the woods, and he enjoys the scenic crowd. He enjoys seeing the bunnies and the deers. He enjoys seeing the mountains and the valleys. Mountains and valleys I can do without. But this is what he likes to do. Doesn't it sound awesome? Don't you want to do that yourself? Now, it got me thinking about these long runs and why in the world would anybody subject their body to such a thing? So I started doing some research this week on the internet, and I found out some interesting things. I found, out one, found one article that was really intriguing. Let me just read a portion of the article so that you get the feel of the mindset of these kind of people. Ultra runners have discovered something very special. If you slow down just a bit from marathon pace and keep stuffing your face, you can go on and on and on. And as the endorphin highs triggered by running make it is as addictive as heroin, it's an unspeakably amazing, even transcendental experience. Many, including myself, get hopelessly addicted to seeing how far we can go. See what you have been missing? The article goes on and says this is a growing craze that even grandmothers are becoming a part of. And they are participating in this. Now, the article was selling these long-distance runs by giving some of the benefits. Now, once you hear the benefits, you're going to want to do this. Number one, they're just eating contests, really. Okay? You can run at a slow pace if you want. And this is the big one. You'll make lots of friends. Now, it does squeeze in there this little phrase, you will probably cry. Now, that intrigued me a little bit to find out why they were crying. And so the article says that you will experience much chafing, tummy troubles, hallucinations, and lose a few toenails, and in parentheses it says badges of honor. All this uh, can bring on immense pain, 
and you couple this with sleep deprivation, it makes the emotions raw, and thus the water works. Awesome! Don't you want to go out and sign up for this? Now, there are people out there that are like my friend Les Troyer, and I say, God bless him. I knew he couldn't be here today because he's probably getting IV therapy at some hospital in PA. But this is just crazy. Why people would do that? I don't know. But it does make for a great analogy on the spiritual level of what life is like. Just to say that life is like a marathon probably doesn't go far enough. I think that life is more like an ultra marathon and there is a lot of problems and the longer I go in life, I find that out and so do you. And so what we learn is that we are to press on. It's interesting, in the passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to say, we press on to win, to, towards the goal to win. Now he's using a marathon analogy to relate to what our aim should be in life. And face it, there's many things that are competing for our aim in life. Your boss wants your company to be your aim in life. Your spouse wants your family to be your aspiration. Your girlfriend or your boyfriend wants to be king or queen of your life. And if you have a newborn child, that child expects that they will be the center of your universe. So what is our aim? What is it to be about? So the question this morning I want us to think about is, what should be our aim in life? Paul is going to be looking forward to heaven. Now when we say looking forward, we're not talking about, hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you someday. Although he wanted to see Jesus, the forward was in more of an action of something that he is going to, it's more of a directional thing of what he wants. As he pursues this walk here on earth, he is looking forward to the heavenward goal that he is working towards. And so I believe it's a heavenward goal that we should work towards as well. And so let's pray right now that God would soften our hearts to his word and open our our eyes as well. Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, as we think about heaven, that we just don't think of it as a distant thing, but that we think of it as the, the very thing that we need to prepare ourselves for. I pray that we would have a heavenward goal as Paul is going to explain today. I pray that we would have a heavenward maturity in our walk. I pray that we would have uh, an anticipation of the heavenward reality that we will experience. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to see things in our life. If If we need to be encouraged, I pray that your spirit would encourage us. If we need to be rebuked, if we need to be corrected in some way, may your spirit do that work in our hearts as well. So we pray that you would do your work and that we would respond in the act of worship in obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen. So our outline's pretty simple. It's a heavenward goal that Paul's going to talk about. He establishes a goal. Then he says what we need to do between now and heaven is we have to have a heavenward walk. 
and then there's going to be a heavenward reality that we will experience. So let's look at the heavenward gold, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own made it my own but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and stri- straining forward to what lies ahead i press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus now paul starts out this segment by saying not that i have obtained it have obtained this already The this is referring to what he had covered in the previous passage, which we had covered three weeks ago. By the way, it was great to have Vernon Brewer here. I know it was a heavy message, but it opened our world to a reality that's out there. And I hope you got the whole pastor swap thing. But the week before that, those things happened, we covered the first part of chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul in that passage talked about his life accomplishments before Christ. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had accomplished all these things. He had legalistic righteousness. His zeal was that he persecuted the church. So he goes on and on and on about this list. Then Christ invades his life and basically everything he thought was awesome in his life Christ says it's good, Paul says uh, it's good for the manure pile. It's good for the crap pile. And so it's worth nothing. And then he gives a new list of what they needed to be. And what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to have a righteousness that comes from God. I want to experience the power of the resurrection. I want to share in the suffering of Christ. I want to be like Jesus in his death. You can summarize all five of those things as Christ-likeness. That's what he was striving for. That's what he wanted to do. Now Paul goes on in this passage and says, Hey, I want you to know that I have not arrived. I haven't attained all of these things, this Christ-likeness. But what I am doing is I am pressing forward. I am pressing forward to make sure that this is true in my life. Now what I love is the honesty of Paul. The honesty of Paul because Paul had become a Christian 30 years prior to writing this letter. So in that 30 years time, he probably accomplished more than we would ever dream about accomplishing for the Lord in his 30 years. He had seen people come to faith in Christ. He had seen new churches that were planted. But in the midst of all that, he had obstacles galore. He had all kinds of persecution and afflictions, and yet he stayed the course. He didn't veer to the right, very, very, veer off to the right or to the left. He stayed the course. And so what Paul is basically saying is, these are, these are good things, but forgetting what lies behind, he's not saying that they're bad. He's just saying, I'm not focused on those things. I'm not going to rest on my past accomplishments. I am going to go forward and I am going to press on. I am going to press on to new frontiers until God takes me home. 
Friends, are there new frontiers that God wants you to press on towards? Are there new territories that he wants you to venture into? Is there things that he is putting upon your heart that he says, I want you to press on forward? Now, Paul says in this passage, he uses two phrases. He uses the phrase in verse 13 to strain forward to what lies ahead. And he also uses this phrase, press on in verse 12, and then in verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Both of these phrases are sprinter's terms. They are sprinter's terms that gave the the, the idea of aggressiveness and a lot of energy. In other words, what Paul wanted to do is with all of his energy, with every spiritual, every spiritual muscle and fiber in his body, he wanted to strain forward to win the prize. And he wasn't going to give up. He wasn't going to give up because of obstacles. He wasn't going to give up because God did something that he couldn't quite wrap his mind around. He wasn't going to give up because of sickness or illness or some kind of disability or affliction. We know he had a thorn in the flesh. He wasn't going to give up for anything because he had this finish line in focus. And he wanted to finish with deep, a deep sense of purpose and conviction. What an incredible example for us. There's something in this passage, though, that jumped out. In verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. When I first read it, I kind of went over that. And then I went back and I'm like, wow, think about that. He is striving for this Christ-likeness. He's giving us his motivation. He's striving for this Christ-likeness simply because Christ Jesus made me his own. In other words, he knew that God saved him out of the muck and mire of this life. He knew that he cleaned him off. He knew that he didn't save him just to take up space on earth. But he saved him so that he could be used for his purpose. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are to run the race that is marked out for us. There is a race that God has for every single believer in Christ. It's marked out for us. And we are to run that race. Paul wanted to bring full glory to God the Father in carrying out that purpose that God had for him. And so Paul with, was victorious. Uh, vigorously and with great laser focus aimed at doing that. It's interesting. The phrase at the very end is uh, he's striving for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. The upward call of God. The heavenward call of God. Post, most likely Paul had these, uh, these Roman uh, games that they did and that at the end of the games that there was this sense of reward and there would be this uh, pallet by which they would stand up just similar to the, what the Olympics is. It's called the Bema Seat. It's where there's an, a, awards that are given 
and Paul probably had that in mind as he's thinking about that. Now, I don't think Paul was thinking, Lord, I really want lots of crowns or I want lots of trophies. What he wanted to be is worthy of the victor crown. He wanted to be worthy of it. My friends, this should be an, uh, an encouragement to us because this is what we should want. So here's some evaluation. Here's an evaluation question for us to think about. At what level of passion are we running our earthly race? I want you to think about that for a minute. At what level of passion are we running our earthly race? Are we sitting on the sidelines? Or are we living life on purpose? The thought came to me this week, how many people are missing out on blessings, on joy, because they are not serving their great king the way that they should. Maybe they're running at half capacity. Maybe they're running aimlessly. What would happen if we ran with the finish line in view and that we ran with 100% sold out desire for Christ? Now, Paul would probably say, I haven't obtained that. He did. I know for myself I haven't obtained that. I want with all of my heart, to be completely sold out. Now, here's one word of caution. How many of you are doers? Just raise your hand if you're like, I'm, I'm a task person. I just love to do. I, that, that's me. That's me. I love to accomplish things. I like to mow the lawn just to see where the, where I, where the, you know, where the lawn was long and now it's not. And it looks beautiful. So that's kind of weird, I know. But that's okay. But some of us in our striving to do, what we do is sometimes mistakenly thinking, think that our doing equals my significance. And you got to realize you are significant because you are a child of God, plain and simple. We must be before we do. We must be in Christ. We must understand him. That's why it's important that we have times of intimacy with God where we are refreshed in Him, that we are instructed by Him, that we are encouraged by Him, and then the doing will flow naturally. So that's the heavenward, that's what we are, the heavenward goal that we are to have. Now let's move on to the heavenward walk. Now as Paul gives the heavenward walk, he's going to give some positives and he's going to give a negative. And so he, we're going to see both of them. One, obviously the positive is what we want to strive for. Verse 15, he says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. There's positive, positive, positive. 15, 16, and 17. But then he hits the negative in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walks as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So we have two walks here. 
One is a mature walk that we as believers should strive for. And then there's the earthly walk. Let's look at the mature walk. The mature walk, first of all, is a walk of, of striving to know God on a deeper level. That's what he means in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. The implication is that that is a striving. This is, it doesn't mean that we've reached some kind of spiritual perfection, but we are working, working and understanding, trying to understand Christ more in our life. So the first pursuit is the pursuit of maturity in this uh, mature walk that we pursue him. Now, I believe Paul is addressing the Philippians, and he knew that there were some of the believers that he was writing that they were living below their exalted position in Christ. Now, think about that. Is it possible for us as believers to live below the exalted position we have in Christ? I believe so. I think this is why Paul is, in a sense, raising the bar for us. And he wants us to understand what it means to really strive for Christ. He knew that there were people that were busy for Christ. He knew that there were people that were busy, but they weren't growing. You know how it goes. We get busy with our families. We get busy with our work. We might even get busy with umpteen million things in church stuff. And that's good. It's not a bad thing. But the problem is, if at the end of the week, we haven't cracked open our Bible just to know him, then we're missing out on the most essential thing. You see, we have a personal responsibility to grow. Now, if you're a new believer, the scriptures describe somebody coming alongside of you and helping you. I want you to know that's really important. When an infant is born, you, she's, that infant, that child is, is going to be on the breast milk of her, of her mother. She's going to be on, on this easy, palatable food eventually. That creamy foods that she could take in and eventually spoon-fed and then eventually feeds themselves. That child. This is the pro process of maturity. Well, there comes a place where we as believers need not have other people spoon-feed us, but we need to take responsibility for feeding ourselves. Now, recently, our granddaughter, Faye, has become, well more mature. She's almost one this week. Three weeks ago, she started walking everywhere. And now she wants to do everything independent of us. If I try to feed her, no, no, she doesn't want me to feed her because she can feed herself very well, as you can see. This was on vacation. She was feeding herself spaghetti, and she did a fantastic job. And I learned that it makes great mousse for the hair, too. This is how we need to be as believers. We need to take on a responsibility to feed ourselves. It's interesting, Paul in Colossians, he was describing to the Colossian church what they needed to do. And he said this, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He didn't say, have somebody help you walk. He says, you walk in him, rooted 
build up in him, establish in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Look at the words Paul uses, rooted, built up, established. Here's my question. Are you maturing in your walk with the Lord? The other aspect of this mature walk is that we stay on the path. Verse 16 says, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. The phrase hold true means to walk in a straight line. And basically Paul is saying, there needs to be this straight and narrow that we maintain throughout this path from here to eternity. And we need to not vary to the, uh, veer off to the right or left. The, the same thing is embraced in Proverbs chapter 4 of what Paul's instructing us. Proverbs 4.25 says this, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only the ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. The question is simple. Are we straying from the path or are we staying on the path? See, when work becomes our mistress, we're straying off of the path. When we view things on our computers that are clearly sexually driven, we're straying off the path. When we're spending more money than we make, we're stray, straying off the path. When we don't have time for church, we're straying off the path. But on the opposite side, when we are striving for God and the fellowship of the church, we're staying on the path. When we're looking into God's word, we're staying on the path. When we serve in different areas, when we do community outreaches like we're about to do with the Main Street Festival, that's a great thing for us as a church to stay on the path. And by the way, we need lots of people to help out. We need to stay on the path. Here's the third aspect of this mature walk, and that is you surround yourself with good examples. We know Corinthians says uh, that bad company corrupts good morals. We know what bad company does. But this is what Paul says. Brothers, join in in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. Paul is saying you can follow my example and there are many believers around you that you can follow. Now Paul was not being arrogant and thinking that he was the end all and be all. He had already said that he hadn't, uh, hadn't achieved what he's looking for of Christ-likeness. But he's striving that direction. And here would be the caution. Anytime you have examples, they're going to be flawed people. Never put a pastor on his pedestal because except in when they're doing family interviews, that type of thing. But you don't put us there. Don't put us metaphorically on that level because you're going to be disappointed in me. You're going to be disappointed in our elders. You're going to be disappointed in our deacons. You're going to see their flaws. But are they striving for Christ? Here's what I do. I look at different people that I want to be like and I set them as my example. In regards to marriage, I want to be like my mom and dad. They've been married for over a hundred years. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, wisdom issues, I want to be like my fellow elders. 
I totally respect them. Sometimes their wisdom goes contrary to my wisdom. That tells you that they have wisdom. When I'm looking at people that, a pastor that can instruct and, and has been a mentor, I look at Pastor Butch Persley, for the church that sent Mission View out. He's still my mentor. We meet once a month. When I look at how to end life, I look at people like Ferd Yoder, which you'll learn about in a minute. So this is the mature walk. So the question is, who's, who's, your, team, who's your team of examples going to be in your life? Now on the negative side of things, he talks about this earthly walk. And in this earthly walk, he basically is a, uh, addressing a group of individuals that were doing just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul was. They weren't on a, on a path of maturity. They were on a path of worldliness. And they were trying to pursue their own righteousness. And this is what Paul says in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, with tears, with crying, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is passionate about this group of people. Now most commentaries say that this is a group of Judaizers that he addressed at the beginning of the, cha of the chapter. And these were Judaizers that held to Old Testament rituals such as circumcision and keeping all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But there was another thing that they held to and that they did not hold to uh, a moral law. They basically said, because we're under grace, there's no sin that we commit that isn't, you know, isn't covered under the blood. And so basically what they're doing is they're using their, uh, the, this grace as a reason for their sin. So they can have an affair and it doesn't really matter because they're covered under the grace of Christ. It's a perverted way of looking at God's law and, under, and God's grace. And Paul is, is so torn up about it. He says, with tears I've pleaded with you. Because I believe these were individuals that were making friends with the Philippian church. And they were kind of worming their way into their life. They were enemies of the cross. Now, instead of staying on the path, these individuals were making their own path. And so Paul identifies the path for the Philippians. He says this, their end is destruction, verse 19. Their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. Four things he gives. First of all, he says their end is destruction. He, this, what a contrast to heaven. The word end means ultimate destiny, one's ultimate destiny. And destruction means an eternal punishment and separation from the presence of God. So their end is an eternal punishment and separation from the presence of God. Do you realize that hell really is about the absence of Christ? We don't know what it's like to have the absence, the, the presence of Christ completely removed from us. And I hope you never experience that because that's what people will experience in hell. My younger brother, before he became a Christian, used to say, you know, it's going to be a party in hell and I'm just going to enjoy it with my friends. And I'm like, you're so stupid. That's what you could say to your brother. 
I'm like, that's stupid. Why do you think that way? It's ignorance of what you're speaking. There's a rude awakening. Here's the second thing that Paul says about this group. He says their God is their stomach. Basically saying they're all about themselves. Their physical needs, what they want. Here's the third thing. Their glory is in their shame. Instead of giving glory to God, these people were heaping praise upon themselves. My friends, if you see people that are all about themselves, even under the name of Christ, if you see people that are meeting their own needs, beware. And the fourth thing is that their mindset is on earthly things. They weren't doing heavenly things. They weren't striving for God. They were striving for their own kingdom. So here's my question for us as we finish out this section. Are we living above or below our exalted positions in Christ? If we're living above it, then we're walking. We're in the first category. We're, we got a walk of maturity. But it is possible, even as believers, for us to get on a detour, for us to become apathetic in our faith, and we live below our exalted position in Christ. I hope that's not the case. We're to have a heavenward goal. We're to have a heavenward walk. Because there's going to be a heavenward reality. Look at the last two verses that Paul gives us. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. Now in these two verses we learn four realities about heaven. Number one, that heaven is our citizenship. The word citizenship, the Greek word here, refers to colonies of foreigners that moved to their final citizenship. Now, the Philippians understood this because they were a colony of people, but their citizenship was in Rome. We should understand that because we're in colonies of our place here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And that's the implication that he is talking about here. Our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, heaven is where the presence of Christ will be. The presence of God and the, the physical presence of Christ. It's our prepared home according to Jesus in John 14. It's the place where our names are written and registered. And heaven is the place where other believers will be. So that's the first thing. Heaven is our citizenship. Here's the second thing we learned. Heaven should be greatly anticipated. It says in the past, our passage that we await a Savior. The word await suggests this eager tiptoe anticipation for the King of Kings. It's kind of like a child on Christmas Day tiptoeing to look at their pri pre uh, the presents under the tree. There's that kind of giddy anticipation. Now, I know that we all long for heaven, don't we? But I believe, as I have seen it in life, those that get closer to heaven, you just see it in their eyes, you see it in their mindset, that they long for Jesus. They long for something different than this world. And they become great, uh, filled with joy in that anticipation. Here's the third thing we look for, uh, know about heaven from this passage. Heaven is the place where our bodies will be transformed. Now, some of us are greatly looking forward to this transformation. Right? 
Anybody? Anybody tired of aches and pains? Anybody tired of treating people with aches and pains? Now, Bill, you, you didn't have to wave your hand like that. Phyllis knows that you're weak and feeble. So, no, as we get older, we realize these things about ourselves. And so we need a new body. Now, there's going to be a time that Christ comes back, and it's called the resurrection. And those that were in Christ before, at they, though they were present with Christ, in spirit, they will receive their new bodies. And we who are caught up in the air with Christ will receive our new bodies as well. But here in Philippians, it says, we will be he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious one, to be like Jesus's glorious one. So I look at the model of Christ and say, that is the the likelihood of what our bodies would be like. Now keep in mind that Jesus was divine, so there may be divine things that he did in his body that we wouldn't be able to do. But if we did the things that Jesus did in his divine body, this is what would be true of us. Number one, there would be some resemblance to our old body. People, would, people recognize Jesus, but there were times that they didn't recognize him. Number two, we'll be able to eat food. And I believe food will have no calories in heaven. None whatsoever. We'll be able to eat food. Number three, our bodies will be physical. And possibly, it will be able to appear and disappear as Jesus did. Remember, he was, the disciples are in a room. Pop, Jesus is right in the room. That's his resurrected body. Now, maybe that's just something of a divinity, but that would be really a cool thing if we could do that. And you will be able to enjoy relationships. Here's the fourth thing we learned about heaven. Heaven will have one ruler, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that last verse again. It says, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word subject means to arrange order, things in order or rank. And so what is gonna, what's going to happen is King Jesus is the ruler. And he subjects everything under his, uh, under his authority. Now I'm really encouraged by this. In heaven there will be no Democrats or Republicans or Independents. That's wiped out. None of that. Nothing political. It's a theocracy. God is on the throne. We get to be under his rule. Every decision will be perfect. Now, some might think that every decision that they make is perfect, but we know that's not ca the case here on this earth. But his decisions will be perfect. And here's what I also know. We will work in heaven. You say, work? Isn't work part of the fall? No, remember, Adam and Eve worked before the fall. Work is part of God's ordained way for us to, to, to accomplish things. And God has given us that ability to work. Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? Those that fulfilled and were faithful to the task here on earth, the implication is that they will be given greater responsibilities later. So are you being faithful here? If you're faithful here, God gives you greater responsibilities later. If you read Revelations 19 and 20, you will see that there is a thousand-year reign of Christ. Some theologians believe that at the rapture of the church, uh, the raptured church will become a part of the armies of God, 
who will help govern under Christ during that thousand reign, year reign of Christ. I don't know, maybe you would be an under-shepherd of Christ to a territory or have work to do in that regard. I don't know. But we know after the thousand-year reign of Christ, if you look at the end of Revelation, then we come to the new heaven and the new earth, and that's where we're with him forever. And we will sing the song we sang early, earlier. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Are you anticipating heaven? I hope so. With this heavenward reality in mind, I want to conclude the message by telling you a story about a guy named Ferd Yoder. Ferd Yoder lived in the presence of Christ here only to be transformed into the presence of Christ at the end of his life. Now, Jeff and Katie and, and, and Jeff's mom is with, Ferd's wife is here. And I, so, oh, you got a bunch of Yoders here. That's, a, yeah, man, that's awesome. And what an incredible family. I've known them for years. And I asked Jeff to write this about his father. So I don't want this to be my words. I want this to be his words. Listen to what he says about his father. My father was a hardworking, simple man, born Amish. He loved the Lord. He basically had three interests, laying brick, spending time with family, and serving the Lord and others through the local church and various missions. He always said that he would probably die with a trowel or a shovel in his hand. However, God had different plans for my father's last years. Right before his 65th birthday, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. They were able to surgically remove the cancer. At that point, my father's outlook on, on life's priorities dramatically changed. He spoke more about heaven and the Lord and didn't want my brother or I, who were in the same occupation, didn't want to bring up masonry or construction projects with him. He even thought about retiring. The R word had not been spoken by him before. He did semi-retire until several years later when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. After battling and defeating prostate cancer, he completely retired. At this point, his life purpose shifted into overdrive. He became heavily involved with the Gideons. I don't think I have any business contacts that weren't personally handed a Bible by my father. He had always read and studied the Bible and had very active and was active in church. But in facing cancer twice, he seemed to have a spiritual awakening. In 2012, we received the devastating news that he had inoperable pancreatic cancer. The doctors gave him four to six months to live. The next five months, our family was on an emotional roller coaster with him. At times, my dad would appear sad, depressed, or even angry. But being a part of Maranatha Bible Church body, it served to be invaluable. The outpouring of compassion, prayers, and assistance was overwhelming and humble. Dad began meeting with the care pastor at Maranatha. His name's Don Rohrbacher. 
He was exhaustively studying the Bible and other resources about heaven. My father never sat still and was really concerned that he wouldn't be given enough chores in heaven. During the last few months of his life, there was an urgency about him like I have never seen. He studied the word in depth and wanted to discuss what he studied with every single person. He would write down scripture verses on post-it notes. He would write down a couple of phrases from old hymns and would want us to look up the rest of the lyrics and sing the hymns with him. And they did. He sent letters to his non-Christian friends and relatives explaining the plan of salvation. Even while bedridden with a catheter, he wouldn't reject any visitor that would arrive at the house because he wanted to tell them about Jesus and where he would be spending eternity. He was comforted in his last days by Psalm 73, 23 through 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom I, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. My father wrote his own obituary and he had it published in three local newspapers. His obituary included the following paragraphs. One of Ferd's final requests was to have the gospel, the good news of Jesus, written clearly for all who read this to understand that he is in heaven now only because he placed all of his trust and faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his Lord, Savior, and Redeemer alone, and not in any religion. As it says in the Bible in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. He goes on in the article, the obituary. As you read this, pray this. He's leading him in like a sinner's prayer in the obituary. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. Ferd wants nothing more than for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus and truly know that he is your only hope. In eternity, you will be glad you trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Jeff finished this out by saying, My dad, Ferdinand Moses Yoder, expressed to everyone about his joy in the journey. And he pressed on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. Lord Jesus, may we be like this. May we have the same kind of passion because we've kept our eyes on you. And Lord, as we conclude our service time, I want to pray specifically for the person that is off track. I pray, Father, that they would realize 
that there is nothing greater worth pursuing than you. The path off of Christ is a path of pain, devastation, betrayal, because sin always takes us further than we want to go. It keeps us longer than we want to stay. And it costs us more than we want to pay. Help us to realize that. And to turn our eyes upon you in this last song. I pray for the person that is totally in love with you. That just needs encouragement today because of the things going on in their life. And as they sing this song, may they be encouraged. And finally, I pray for the person that just doesn't know you. That their end will be destruction until they yield their life completely to you. And maybe even during this song, they would simply say, Examine me, O Lord. Try me. And know my thoughts. Search me and know my heart. I want to yield my life to you, Jesus. From this day forward. This song we sing can mean so many different things to different people. But may we respond in a heart of worship right now.